Welcome to the Gas Street Podcast. Our vision as a church is to be light for the city. We really hope you enjoy this message. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us online as well. Great to have you with us as well today. And uh, I've got a little question for you as we start, which is this. Have you ever wondered if you might be the most boring person in the world? I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Uh, (laughs) The thought, I have to say, has flitted through my head every so often. The other day when I found myself sorting my herb and spice jars into two separate pots, it did occur to me then. Well, if it's a question that you have... (laughs) No, no, that's all right. That's not boring. Okay, good. If you have ever wondered that, there's some really good news for you because scientists have just completed last week a piece of research into boringness, into what the characteristics, the activities, the behaviours might be of what people perceive as boring. And they came up with the theory that the most sort of boring hobbies are sleeping, watching TV, watching animals and religion, going to church. So, the media, with great glee, I don't know if you saw this, presented this, that the most boring person in the world is a bird-watching accountant who goes to church. (laughs) So, could you just check with the person next to you if they are a bird-watching accountant? (laughs) Quick check. Brilliant. (laughs) Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Love it, though. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. It doesn't come at all as a surprise to me that people perceived going to church as being a, a little bit boring. It's not a surprise. It's the stereotype. It's what you see on TV or read in the media sort of regularly. But what I found personally a bit more offensive is that they would class going to church, meeting Jesus, as a hobby. Because let me tell you this. Encountering Jesus Christ can never be a hobby, okay? You know, you can meet him and you can have your life turned upside down or you can turn away and you can walk away from him, but it can never, ever be a hobby. He hasn't left that option open to us, okay? So we're now traveling into the Easter season. This is sort of a a prequel to the Easter season. Next week, it's Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and his last few days of life. And then obviously, it's Easter Sunday after that. But today, we're going to look at a couple of events that happened just in the couple of weeks before him going into Jerusalem. And you know, through his life, Jesus encounters many, many people. If you've read the book, you'll probably have a favorite encounter. It might be the woman at the well. It might be Zacchaeus. It might be Peter. But today we are going to take a little look at Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and Judas. They all encounter Jesus. They all encounter him in a different way. And in fact, the events that happen with these four people are what triggers him going into Jerusalem and being arrested by the religious authorities. It's what triggers him being executed. So we're going to take a look at John 11, when Jesus turns up at a funeral and turns it into a party graves into gardens with the incredible raising of Lazarus. And then we're going to look at John 12, when he goes to another party. It's a dinner party this time, and it's when uh, they're celebrating Lazarus being raised from the dead. It's a kind of thank you party for Jesus. And in fact, at that point, Jesus starts talking about his own burial. But as we look at these events, I'd love you to have the question at the back of your head, how do I respond when I encounter Jesus? It might be you don't feel like you have encountered him before. So what might that look like? 
How do you respond when you encounter Jesus? So if you've got your Bibles, uh, open them up at John 11. We're going to dot around a little bit through these readings, so track with me that they'll be on the screens as well. Starting at verse 17 in John 11. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. We're just going to jump to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then we come to the beautiful raising of Lazarus, the incredible event. And I'm just going to move on to John 12, starting at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Wow, it's a lot to take in. That was a lot of story all in one go. But some amazing events are happening here. All sorts of things going on. Now, um, as a clergy person, I'm ordained in the Church of England. One of my biggest privileges is to take a wedding, to marry a couple. It's really exciting and amazing thing to be able to do. And I wonder what your favorite part of a wedding is. Just turn to the person next to you. Tell them what your favorite part of going to a wedding is. You can put it online if you're online. Okay, it might be that it's admiring the brides and the bridesmaids' dresses, beautiful dresses there. It might be when we pronounce that a couple are husband and wife. It might be that moment, or it might be the reception, it might be the dancing. Did anyone say it was the speeches? 
Anyone's favorite bit? You surprised me, guys. So strange. But for me, there is one killer moment. When I am taking a wedding for a couple, and we're all there in the church together, and the wedding party has come up the aisle, the um, bridesmaids, the family, they've all come and sat down. And at that moment, I've asked the groom to stay facing the front while other people are coming in. But at the moment the bride arrives at the end of the aisle, I give a prearranged nod to the groom, and he steps forward, and he turns around to face his bride at the end of the aisle as she starts to walk towards him, and they lock eyes for the first time. And it's this incredible moment where the reality sets in, the depth of what is about to happen. Very often, the groom starts weeping first. Then the bride starts, then I start, then everybody starts weeping. It's this incredible, beautiful moment of encounter, full of gratitude, full of just, just beauty. It's a wonderful moment, this encounter and this emotional response. And in the passages we've just read, there are loads of moments like that. You know, there are these different responses to Jesus. There's gratitude, and there's worship, and there's thanksgiving, and there's offense and anger all muddled in together. These encounters trigger people either to believe in Jesus or to walk away from him, to despise him, in fact, to report him to the religious authorities. There's no way Jesus can be a hobby. No way. So I want to take a brief look at each of these people, and I'm going to start with Martha, because if you know the story, you'll know that we've met Martha before. Back in Luke 10, she's the famous Martha of Martha and Mary, where she is stressing out in the kitchen, and she's really cross with her sister Mary, because Mary's not helping like she's supposed to be, and Martha's really wound up, and she goes to complain to Jesus. She says, you know, what, what, she should be helping me. What's going on? And Jesus rebukes her. He says to her, you know what? Mary's doing what's better. Mary is doing what is better. And it might be that you've taken a personality test. You might have taken an Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders. We love Strength Finders at Gas Street. And uh, if you've ever done Strength Finders, you will recognize in Martha the activator. Any other activators here? I'm an activator. I love it. Martha loves getting things done. Okay, she is out there. She is always on the move. She is making lasagna for the glory of God. And I say amen to that. And it's really interesting because in John 12, we can see that Martha is at it again. We saw in the passage, she's serving again. Here she is. But in Luke 10, when we've met her, Jesus rebukes her. He tells her off. And in here, there's no rebuke. So what is going on? Because something has changed. Well, you might recall a little bit earlier in Jesus' ministry, he asks his disciples, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And they say, you're a, a prophet, you're a teacher. And Peter stands up and says, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the one who's to come. And Jesus goes, yes, you have got it. And it's on that faith that I am going to build my church. Well, Martha has her own moment exactly like this. I think we kind of historically have forgotten about it a little bit. But in verse 27, she says, of John 11, she says, he asks if she believes. And she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She proclaims who Jesus is. And the astonishing thing is that she doesn't do this after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. That would be understandable, right? Her brother had been raised. Yes, you're the Messiah. She says it before. 
She says it when she's in this incredibly dark moment of loss and of hurt and of feeling betrayed. But still, she says, I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. It's so interesting in the Bible how often God asks us to have faith and trust before before, before we see the answers, before we see the promises. We are asked to step in because, you see, faith is the magic with God. Faith is the magic with God. And before, Martha was serving out of duty and out of stress and anxiety, but now she's serving out of gratitude and out of joy. It's a totally different way of doing things. You know, sometimes we are doing all the right things in all the right ways, but our hearts are exhausted just exhausted. We are serving from trying to prove something, from trying to impress someone. You know, it's not wrong to want to do things well. It's good to do things well. But when the performance in itself becomes the driver, and there are many reasons for that, it might be upbringing or fear or insecurity, then we become in danger of collapsing in on ourselves. You know, it's brilliant last week seeing the Love Your Neighbor video. If you haven't seen Rachel's talk from last week, if you haven't watched the video, definitely check it out. It is so good. And seeing the team of Love Your Neighbor, the way they described serving, they said, it's a privilege to do this. It's a joy. We love it. It's just my favorite time of the week. How amazing is that? Serving just out of this joy and out of gratitude and out of knowing that it is a privilege. So Martha responds to Jesus with joyful serving, joyful serving. But what about Mary? Well, I love Mary because every time we meet her, she is breaking expectations. She is making up the rules for herself. And I cannot imagine what it must have felt like for a woman at that time in that culture, how many pressures there must have been on her to conform. You know, just this last week, I was reading um, about a small group of women and girls in Afghanistan who uh, were protesting. I think there was only a couple of dozen of them, but they were protesting against the ban on girls' education. Could you imagine how tough and scary and dangerous that must have been? You know, we need to keep praying for them. We need to keep praying for them. You know, in Luke 10, Mary's supposed to be in the kitchen. You know, what she's doing isn't actually right. She shouldn't be sitting at Jesus' feet. Consider this uh, teaching from the first century Rabbi Eliza. He says, let the law be burned rather than entrusted to a woman. You know, these were the prevailing attitudes that Mary is breaking when she encounters Jesus. And he doesn't just grudgingly allow her to listen to him. He encourages it. He says it's the better thing to be doing. And this is just a little aside, but if you, um, as a woman, women here, if you've ever felt that you're, whether you're not allowed to speak or lead or teach, you've ever been told that in the past, then can I encourage you to look at Jesus and Mary in this moment? You know, if we keep women back, we are just stopping half of our task force being out there seeing God's kingdom built. It's really, really important. And there's an amazing book. I can't go into it now. Um, I think we've got a picture of it. But Lucy Pepiat's Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women. If you want to know a bit more for men and women, this is a brilliant book. Lucy Pepiat is always great on the subject. Check it out. It's really, really important. So John 11 Mary is devastated. She is weeping and she accuses Jesus. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I don't understand. I thought you loved us. And when things go wrong in our lives, people sometimes walk away from Jesus. They walk away from their faith. They think, oh, forget it. I, I, just, I just don't want to know anymore. 
But we've got to know that Jesus is part of the solution. He is not part of the problem. And he promises to journey times like that right beside us, holding us, with us. You know, what is Jesus' response when he sees Mary's tears? Jesus wept. That moment of emotional connection and validation of what she is feeling. This incredible emotional connection, this encounter. And of course, Mary sees this extraordinary miracle her brother brought back from the dead after being dead for four days. Following Jesus is never going to be a hobby for Mary. Never, never. He set her free from the restrictions placed on her. He's restored her precious brother to her. Her heart is literally overflowing with gratitude. And it's in light of that that we move into John 12 and we can understand a little bit better what is going on with Mary and the perfume at that moment. Because we know that the perfume would have been probably the most expensive thing in the house. Judas tells us it's worth a year's wages. You know, when Mary first brought it into the room, perhaps they thought, she's going to pour out a couple of drops on him. That's nice. That'll, that'll smell, smell nice. But of course, the whole thing is broken open, is poured out entirely. Mary lets down her hair again against expectations. It's above and beyond and then some. You know, we're talking today, we're talking last week about generosity. And this is the generosity we're talking about. You know, what an incredible example Mary gives us from this place of overflowing gratitude to pour out her worship, pour out everything that she has. And what's going on in her heart comes out as worship. And of course, for us, it's exactly the same. Whatever is going on in your heart, that is what is going to come out. So Martha's encountered Jesus and responded with joyful serving, and Mary has encountered Jesus and responded with this kind of wild worship. How about Judas? I always feel like when you say Judas, there ought to be a sort of dun-dun-dun moment. I won't make you do it. It's fine. So where Mary found Jesus beautiful, overwhelming, holy, worthy, Judas found Jesus, useful. Useful. You know, we're told in verse 3 of John 12 that as Mary poured out the perfume, that the house was filled with fragrance. It was overwhelming. But in verse 4, we get this interruption. Why wasn't this sold? Why wasn't it given to the poor? We could have reallocated these resources. Feels deeply inappropriate. And that's because it is. It is deeply inappropriate. Judas is pretending to have this theological motive of caring for the poor. But of course, we know because John tells us that he's just trying to mask the greed in his heart. And the point behind all of this is that he thought that Mary's worship belonged to him. He thought that what Mary was pouring out to God was due to him. He owned it. And if I'm honest, it's pretty hard to understand. You know, Judas has been with Jesus for a while. He's seen the healings. He's seen the teachings, the miracles. He's spent all this time with him. He's learned to say all the right things, but it's like he knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Because you see, Judas thought Jesus was going to be good for business. He thought Jesus was going to give him this sort of position of influence. But it doesn't seem to be turning out that way, and Judas is not happy and like what was inside Mary's heart spills out into worship, what's inside Judas's heart also spills out and becomes brutally clear. And within one week from this moment, Judas has betrayed Jesus. He's reported him to the authorities. He's arranged for him to be arrested. 
Judas has encountered Jesus and his response is to try to manipulate the Son of God. Dead religion, hobby religion, says I'll do something for God because I'll get something back rather than I cannot believe how much you have done for me and I can't do anything but worship you, God. You know, I love looking at Martha and Mary. They are just such an inspiration. That they raise your faith when you listen to them, when you hear their stories. And, and I want to think that Judas is somewhere over here. I don't want to know about Judas, okay? But the truth is, am I really that different? It's quite a challenging thought. But, you know, we can be in the environment. We can go through the motions, but we can lose sight of who Jesus is. We can stop having, having everyday encounters with a living Jesus. You know, I don't know where it all went wrong for Judas, but I would say that it's a bit like what St. Augustine calls the greatest sin of all, which is a life curved in on itself. A life curved in on itself. Jesus calls us outwards. Judas was curved inwards. You know, it'd be so helpful, wouldn't it, if we could split people into kind of good and bad and, you know, superheroes and evil villains. But if I'm honest, I can often not work out who's good and bad in the Marvel movies. So (laughs) we are all people of mixed motives. You know, we're all capable of incredible good and incredible selfish things going on in our lives. I know I am. I know, yes, I'm driven by good motives sometimes, but sometimes I'm not. I'm more interested in my own comfort or looking good, or acting out of guilt, or duty. And here's the truth. We are all sinners. It's a really old-fashioned term, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a few, not some, all. All of us. You are all a sinner here. Is that good news? (laughs) You know, it could be really bad news. But before we finish, we haven't looked at Lazarus. We haven't looked at Lazarus, who has clearly never heard the phrase YOLO. (sighs) Had to say it. (laughs) You know, Lazarus, in some ways, is the center of both of these events. You know, it's his raising from the dead, and the second party is given in honor of that happening. But Lazarus never really does anything. He never preaches a sermon, never plants a church. In fact, we don't hear a single word that Lazarus ever says. I mean, he is going to have a great testimony. Don't get me wrong. He's going to be, I was sick, and then I died, and then I was in the tomb for four days. Then Jesus raised me from the dead. Boom. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You don't get a better testimony than that. But if you have ever worried that you haven't done enough for God, then just take a quick look at Lazarus. He was literally dead. He couldn't do anything at all when God reached out to him. Okay? So remember that. Because however passive Lazarus is, He has experienced the power of Jesus in its fullness. He's been raised through this incredible power of God. You know, Judas thought he could earn his way into a place of influence with Jesus. Lazarus could do absolutely nothing, and yet he experienced the power of Jesus, and then he rested in his presence. And there's this lovely little verse in chapter 12 of John, which just says, Lazarus sat at the table. He reclined with Jesus. And that's all we hear of him. What an amazing thing to do. He was content with being in Jesus' presence. He enjoyed his presence. So Martha responds with joyful serving and Mary with wild worship and Lazarus just by enjoying God's presence. What an amazing offer that is for us today. 
You know, Lazarus becomes a bit of a sensation. Loads of people gather around just to see Jesus, but also to see this guy who's been raised from the dead. I mean, who wouldn't want to meet him, right? It'd be so interesting. But it's a bit ironic, really, because now he is top of the hit list alongside Jesus for the chief priests that now want to kill him. So he's just been raised from the dead, and now they're trying to kill him. I mean, what a story. He can literally say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And you can't argue with that. You know, people might argue with your theology. They might argue with your doctrine, your churchmanship. You know, they might argue whether you go to church and whether it's boring or not. But they can't argue when you say, you know, I was hopeless. And then I met Jesus. And now I have hope. They can't argue when you say, you know, I was addicted to whatever. But I met Jesus, and now I am free. They can't argue when you say, well, I was looking for approval, and I was getting exhausted, but now I've met Jesus, and I have come home, and I belong, and I have hope again. He, they can't argue with you when you say, you know, I was looking for love and intimacy in all the wrong places, but now I have met Jesus, and I know that he loves me, not just at my best when I'm looking great, but at my worst, most low-functioning, broken, stupid, selfish moments, he still loves me. He is not going to walk away. He is not going to abandon me. He is with me and he loves me. He loves me. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. And I know I need that every day. I need it every day. And just before we finish up here, I um, <laughs> I have a, a dream sort of holiday, which is somewhere warm, perhaps the South Mediterranean. I'd love to be somewhere like that on holiday. And I thought God gave me this image the other day, and it might be helpful for some of you too. I've never been anywhere quite like this, but I had pictured this sort of stone mansion, this yellow stone, maybe in southern Italy or something. And I'm in this room, and just outside the door is this beautiful pool, swimming pool, outdoor pool. And it's early morning, the light's coming through the shutters, and I can walk through the door and just dive into this incredible water. The air's rich with lavender and rosemary, the early morning sun overhead. And I felt God say to me, Ali, this is what your quiet times are. This is what you're praying in the morning. This is why you're getting up, to dive into this pool of my presence. And this is not going to be a hobby or a duty. This is a place of refreshing and restoring and joy and privilege. Reading God's word, hearing his voice. And I have to say, I, I don't like getting up very early in the morning, but it makes a massive difference if I think, right, I'm going to get up. I'm going to dive into that pool. It's going to be amazing. And it has really transformed how I meet Jesus in the morning every day. Because I have encountered Jesus. You know, when I met him as an adult, I felt like a broken mirror. I felt like a mirror that was sort of reflecting all sorts of dis disparate parts of me, a bit confused, a bit different. And when I encountered Jesus, he made that mirror whole again. I've encountered Jesus, and he has changed my life. You know, eight or nine years ago, I felt Jesus say to me that uh, Nick, my husband, and I were going to be going on a church plant with Tim and Rachel Hughes. We didn't know they were going on a church plant. We didn't know what, anything about it at all. But a week later, Tim spoke to Nick and said, no one knows this, but we're going on a church plant. We feel like we need to ask you guys to come with us. <sighs> okay? So we moved our family 
We moved to be here to help kind of be part of the launch team to plant Gastreet Church. Encountering Jesus has literally changed my life. You know, we've all got something of the Mary and the Martha and the Judas and the Lazarus in us. We are all sinners. It's not a compliment for sure. But you need to know where you are, where you're starting from, what the reality is before we can understand the incredible hope of this exchange that is held out to us. You know, his light for our darkness, his perfection for our brokenness, his life for ours. That's why we are overflowing with gratitude and relief and joy, because Jesus came to bring us life bring us life just like he did for Lazarus. You know, on those days when you feel metaphorically dead or exhausted or struggling with loss or feeling like you've just been trying too hard or even when you've turned your back on him, he'll make a very boring hobby. But encountering him every day will change your life. It will change your life. Now, we're going to respond in two different ways. In a few minutes, we're going to have a moment to pray. But before that, we're going to take communion together. And there isn't a better symbol, a better way of reminding ourselves physically of that exchange of his life for ours. So I'd love to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to say the words of the communion. The Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It's right to give thanks and praise. It is right to praise you, Father, Lord of all creation. In your love, you made us for yourself. When we turned away, you did not reject us, but came to meet us in your Son. You embraced us as your children and welcomed us to sit and eat with you. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. He opened his arms of love upon the cross and made for all the perfect sacrifice for sin. On the night that he was betrayed at supper with his friends, he took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and he gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His body is the bread of life. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we do this in remembrance of him. His blood is shed for all. As we proclaim his death and celebrate his rising in glory, send your Holy Spirit that this bread and this wine may be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. As we eat and drink these holy gifts, make us one in Christ our risen Lord. So with your whole church throughout the world, we offer you this sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the eternal song of heaven saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And we're just going to take a moment now quietly for ourselves. We've talked about being sinners. Well, the thing to do with sin is just to bring it to God. Just confess it to him now and then come and receive his forgiveness. So let's just take a moment in quiet.
Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And as our Saviour taught us, so we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. So we break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body, because we all share in one bread. So draw near with faith, receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which he gave for you and his blood which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So I'm going to invite the um, stewards to come forward and we're going to have three different stations uh, around the front here and one at the back. Uh, We're also, if you need gluten-free there's going to be someone standing by the pillar right here. So if you need a gluten-free wafer, please make your way there. All of the wine uh, today is non-alcoholic. And the way we take communion here is that you'll be given a wafer and then you dip it in the cup and then you can eat it. So we're going to do that together now. Thanks for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. If you want to find out more, visit our website gastric.org or follow us on Instagram at Gastric Church.